the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. And welcome to the show, and I hope you all had a wonderful and a safe holiday. Here we are starting out the year 2008 with another fantastic guest, but I want to say first thank you so much to all of you who take time to listen to this show, who take time to go to the archives. You know, where would I be without you? I have great listeners. I appreciate everything you do. And we have a great show for you today in the area of cultural diversity. Here is a man who, in his words, is differently abled. And we are very excited to have Mr. John Matney on our show today, who not only is a human resources organizational development consultant and professor from Columbus State Community College, but I also know authoring a new book. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Joyce. It's a pleasure to be with you and your guests. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. So, John, just so our listeners will know, how did you first become involved in the world of disability? Well, it happened back in 1985, Joyce. I probably need to go back first and um, give you some background. Um, I first became involved on a first-hand basis, actually. I served uh, proudly with the 377th Combat Support Group in Tansanute, uh Air Base, Saigon, Vietnam, from March 19th, 1969 to March 18th, 1970. My job classification was Combat Security Policeman. Received several commendations and medals for meritorious, meritorious duty and leadership under hazardous combat conditions. To say that it was a horrific year is an understatement. Fifteen years later, on January 24th, 1985, I had my first PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder episode. Now, for those of you who don't know what PTSD is, I'll give you a real quick definition. Uh, it's an anxiety condition brought on as a result of a traumatic event. I call it a significant emotional event, which is outside the normal human experience. In other words, flashbacks taking you back to those, those horrific times while you were in Vietnam. So I had those first flashbacks back in 1985, and that caused me to become withdrawn and depressed. And because of the chemical imbalances that were presented by the PTSD, an onside of bipolar came about. So I'm, I am that, I am a, um, dues, paying card, card carrying member, uh, dual diagnosed PTSD and bipolar since 1985. Well, you really have been through a lot. I know that very well. Um, I do want to ask you another question before we talk about what you're doing now. Okay. When you talk about this post-traumatic stress disorder syndrome, don't you believe that many of our soldiers returning from Iraq are going to have to deal with this? Yeah, there's no question. I've had a couple of friends that I've ran into at the VA. In fact, one young man I used to work with at a state agency. And as a veteran who's been through that experience, you can tell right away when they're shell-shocked and they've, and, they've, and they've had some real traumatic experiences. They've had to respond to condition, condition red conditions that you have to almost every day while you're there. And he was, he, he just, he was in a daze when I looked at him. And so, yeah. It's going to be just as pervasive for those folks as it is uh, 
was for us. You know, I try to do a little volunteer work over there and, and work with the groups because that's pretty helpful to, to sit down and be able to talk about your experience with, you know, some fellow travelers on the journey, so to speak, that, that, that um, you know, to have a common bond with you. And also, John, I want to tell you, we thank you for your service for this country. Thank you so much. We thank you. And, you know, okay, so here I have my first question for you, right from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a question that was emailed, and the question to you from a Harry is, uh, John, it's wonderful what you're doing. I do have a question for you. How do you get people to understand or believe in post-traumatic stress disorder when they think you are making this up? Well, in the book that's going to be hopefully released in the fall of 2008 entitled Out of the Shadows into the Light, my personal testimony, the first thing I do is I I try to inform the reader on exactly what PTSD is. Like I said, I gave you the brief definition. And some of the commonly some of the commonly um common questions that come with that are, well, first of all, do only combat veterans suffer from this disorder? No, absolutely not. If you've been in a bad car accident or had some kind of traumatic experience or witnessed a, a, a beating or a murder, you could. PTSD, uh, another question that comes up is, my experiences happened 30 years ago. Why do I have PTSD now? It's not uncommon. I, I, I have met World War II veterans. I have met Pearl Harbor survivors that still have flashbacks and, and nightmares. What you have to do, you know, what happened to me back in 85, when I, you know, when I first had the first onset of flashbacks, is you have to get to a VA doctor who specializes in this area and have them evaluate you, check, you know, regimen of tests, nervous system, to see if you have full-blown-out PTSD. Now, over the years, they told me that I had more like PTSD-like symptoms. The reason being is I didn't quite fit the profile. You know, I had gotten a good education. I had had good professional jobs. I didn't follow the pattern of prototypical individuals who were stricken with PTSD. You know, I didn't do drugs. You know, I didn't drink excessively. I didn't kick my dog or beat my wife. I wasn't unemployed. So I didn't quite fit the profile. But you have to go through a pretty extensive evaluation to find out. And I'm going to be going back probably next year. I'm not really trying, you know, to 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 to, to fight a claim. I'm 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 beyond that now. I'm more concerned about having the experience to use as a um, an educational vehicle for other individuals who may be, you know, enduring some of the same kind of challenges. That's right. What you said about it could be, you know, a victim of crime. For example, yeah. a lot of women rape, have been raped. You know, yeah. Yes, they. I know from the Women Action Against Rape that a lot of women can just be, you know, walking down the street and hear a certain song or exactly something takes you happens. right back. Yes, takes you right back. And, and what's so incredible about it, Joyce, is it's like a, you know a big you know um, it's like a big movie screen. It all comes back so clear. What happened to me? What precipitated it was um, on that day in January of 1985. It was the 10th anniversary of the withdrawal from Saigon, and they were showing footage. It was Forrest Sawyer and Maria Schreiber. I'll never forget this. My wife and I were getting ready to go to work, and I was upstairs watching the um, watching the broadcast. And um, Ed, the late Ed Bradley, um, he um, he spent time with us. You know, he spent a lot of time in Vietnam, and, and uh, he got hurt a few times, and really, really got involved with with the troops 
interviewed us, Dan Rather, and other people. And they began showing footage of some of those interviews and scenes that I was in that I hadn't seen in all those years. And it snapped me right back, just like that. Just like that. Just like that, like I was there all over again. Unbelievable. And then 15 years later, who'd have thunk it? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I know that can happen. I know that that's true. Yeah. And I also know that there are many people, Vietnam veterans, that even to this day can't talk about the war because, you know, I they saw such did, brutality. I didn't talk about it hardly at all that 15-year period. The only person I talked about it to was my wife. Openly and candidly, I, I never. They do offer you some minimal amount of uh, debriefing and, and and consultation when you first come back through Travis Air Force Base. But my rationale was, why do I want to sit down and talk to you about this when I've already lived it? <laughs> right. I kind of want to move on now, you know. Yes. And yes. so I, I, you know, maybe that was the wrong thing to do. I don't know. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but I didn't see the I didn't see the benefit of it at the time. And I just want to mention to those of you listening to this show, you know, I grew up also during this time period uh, watching watching the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite and every evening seeing that that drawing they would have on the side, you know, of soldiers and then underneath it how many had been killed. And it was just astronomical, as you all know, how it kept escalating. Exactly. And, you know, what always has bothered me is that then... When the soldiers came back, the way they were treated, it was terrible. Oh, it was terrible. I remember when we came back uh, on March 19, 1970, coming back through Travis Air Force Base, our, um, our point of deport, uh, debarkation, and uh, we went, you know, went through, we went through our briefings and, and, and got our got our um, got our marching orders to, to go home. Um, I, we were I was getting ready to head to the terminal, and there were some war protesters throwing eggs and tomatoes at us. And it's calling us warmongers. And I became so incensed. I was a squad leader. I had 14 men that pretty much followed my lead. I got so incensed, I went over the fence and grabbed one of those guys and started choking them. And luckily, two or three of my uh, my squad members pulled me off of it. <laughs> I wasn't a happy camper. Not not exactly a hero's welcome. Yeah, that is that is terrible. Yeah. That is terrible. Well, we're happy to have you now, and we do appreciate well, I everything appreciate that, that you did. And also, I appreciate, John, how you'll be able to help now. Soldiers coming back from Iraq. Yeah, it's time to tell the story, Joyce. And what I'll tell the listeners is when you find a veteran who's served that way, the only thing they want you to do is give them two words, welcome home. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. That's all we ask. Yes. And you know what also bothers me? I've hired other soldiers that served in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And when I said, well, I just want to thank you, you know, for your service and what you did for this country. Uh, and this was, of course, a disabled veteran. So many people have told me, you're the first person that ever told me that. Yeah, I was wearing my Vietnam veterans cap about uh, about two months ago. I was in the library, and this older uh, lady uh, kept staring at me, and she came over to me, and she said very softly, she says, oh, thank you so much. I didn't get it at first. I said, oh, oh, yeah, oh, you're quite welcome. <laughs> so it's, it's nice to hear. It really is. It, it really is. is gratifying to hear that, because when I first got orders to go there, I wasn't you know I, I had some apprehensions I had some some concerns I I, I I I thought that there was some racism at play because proportionately it seemed like more African Americans were being given orders for Vietnam than anyone else I had just come back from Osan Korea um, I I uh, was I was involved with an elite group of uh, of, of 
Security Police during the USS Pueblo crisis between January and June of 1968. And I was one of the uh, special envoys for the McNamara team while they were negotiating getting the, the, the boat back. So it's only, it, it was less than a year between the time I came back from Korea that I got over to Vietnam. So it well with me. Well, now, how long were you in Vietnam? I was in Vietnam for a year, and I was in Osan, Korea prior to that, from January uh, 1968 to June 1968. Mm. Yeah, prior to Vietnam. Well, a year in Vietnam is like 10 years. It is. It's, 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 it's you know, the, the way I always explain it to my family is it's the most horrifying year of my life, you know, without going into all the details. <laughs> well, you know, we're glad we have you back here with us. And we're glad that you are one of those that survived. Thank you so much. I All right, well, with that, that, we're going to go to break for a minute, and then we'll be right back with okay. our guest today, John Matney, Human Resources and Organizational Development Consultant, professor at Columbus State Community College, and author of a soon-to-be-released book. You're listening to Joyce Bender, America's Voice, on Voice America. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, Joyce. Have you ever thought about having your own Internet talk show? Well, if you said yes, then click About Us. Then click Be a Host to get more information. Or just call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417. Say that again. 480-294-6417. VoiceAmerica.com Mom? Dad? How long should I wait for you? Mom? If I'm at soccer practice, what if something happens? Will you come get me? There's no reason not to have a plan in case of a terrorist attack. Mom, if you're not home, should we go to the neighbor's house? And some extremely good reasons why you should. Can you tell me? Everybody should have a plan. Take five minutes to talk about where you'll meet and how you'll get in touch with each other in an emergency. For other things you can do to be prepared, visit www.ready.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. I'm Garcelle Beauvais-Nylon. When I played a DA on NYPD Blue, I got all the facts before trying a case. Yet many don't know the facts about epilepsy. There are two and a half million Americans with the condition, and one in ten Americans will have a seizure in their lifetime. People with epilepsy want to lead normal lives, but too many of us don't know what epilepsy is or what to do if someone has a seizure. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org or call 1-800-332-1000. Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST. 
4 p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. And welcome back to the show. Our guest today is Mr. John Matney. Before we went to break, we were talking about his experiences as a disabled veteran coming from the Vietnam War. And, John, you also mentioned that you are now a person with bipolar disorder. How yes, did you I'm dual f- diagnosed. How did, how did you find this out, and uh, what impact did that have on you? Well, it, it started first with the, uh, the PTSD symptoms. Uh, when I saw the broadcast, I immediately, I became very transfixed. I saw those footages of myself and my and my and my and my squad members being interviewed by Ed Bradley, Dan Rather, and just the different footages around the uh, the the, uh, the air base that I hadn't seen in 15 years. And what happened, you know, at the time I was working as the assistant personnel manager. Um, I don't know if I can say the name of the insurance company or not, where I spent 14 years. But at any rate, I was the assistant personnel manager, and it, 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 I was what they call a generalist. So the job required me to be out and about with my with my uh, my customers, finding out how things were going. Uh, and so I became very reclusive. I used to hide in the bathrooms, thinking that I was, you know, uh, being uh, being infiltrated. The base was being infiltrated. Uh, I thought I had to. I thought I was on listening post became very distorted and of course everyone all 1700 people that I served noticed that John H. Matney Jr. wasn't the same person anymore and so talked to my boss about it he said you know I think it may be a chemical imbalance went to the VA here the, the outpatient clinic went through the diagnostic testing and they first said PTSD like the symptoms but they said that the PTSD had exacerbated my nervous system and created a chemical imbalance in my in my brain cells to the point where now I had the bipolar symptoms. You know, I had the um, you know bipolar meaning being two sided, and of course I was acting out most of the um, the depression. You know, sadness, hopelessness, excessive feelings of guilt, feeling worthless, hard time making decisions, which is totally totally contrary to who I am. Self esteem, suicidal thoughts, all those things came into play. Well, I'll tell you what. You know, many of my, I have employees at Bender Consulting Services who are people Mm -hmm. with bipolar disorder, and what people do not understand is it is a chemical imbalance. And with medication and therapy, you know, you can also compete. You can also be part of society just like anyone else can, but, of course, we have to deal with that whole attitudinal barrier that exists I agree, and and you know, and, and you know, and what when I got when I when I found this out, you know, I, I guess given the, my background as an academician and and, a, and an HR person, I started trying to research and become as knowledgeable about my illness as I can. And what I found out is what you said is true: psychotherapy and medication. Eighty percent of the patients 
that are diagnosed with bipolar are not cured, but they're helped with that. But on the other side of the coin, according to a new study by the University of Colorado, 70% of us will have reoccurring events, even with the best regimentation mm-hmm. being brought forth. Mm-hmm. And I've had a couple of situations this year where I've had to kind of crash and burn. Mm-hmm. I work part time at a at a at a uh, at a, uh, a men's and women's store right down the street here. It's the first job I had, you know, in four or five in four years, and they've been very very compassionate and understanding. You know, they give me time off when I need it. I said I've had two occasions this year where I needed about two or three weeks off because I was going through an episode. Mm-hmm. Episodes are going to still be inevitable, but like you said. Uh, they're manageable, and uh, you know the person will come back even more productive than he was before. But like I said, seven out of ten people will have reoccurring events. Yeah. Well, that is uh, just amazing how you have overcome all of this. And you know, I did want to ask you: you made this move, as you mentioned to mention here. You worked all this time in corporate America. And then here you go off on your own as you are now an entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> how, how do you enjoy being an entrepreneur? Oh, very much. So I uh, I work at home two or three days a week, and I just read a book by a doctor, a guy by the name of Dr. Kirk Byron Jones, called "Addicted to Hurry: Spiritual Strategies for Slowing Down." He encourages us all, especially all of those of us who are over fifty, to learn how to move at a savoring pace. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so. That's what I do. You know, I work part-time at the store 15, 20 hours. I come home, work on a computer, phone calls. I'm putting together my plans and programs for 2008, and I just love it. <laughs> so you're having a good time. Yeah, I've, I've got, you know, I'm, work, I'm working on the first book, and I've got a, uh, working, on, working on a second one for 2009, and I, I'm just loving it. <laughs> well, John, as you are a consultant, when you do go consult with Corporate America, or universities or government agencies, when you talk to them, how do you define cultural diversity? Well, you know, I've been doing this work since 1990, and I remember when I got my first assignment from a colleague of mine from the uh, from my corporate experience working for uh, uh, the, the company I worked for for 14 years, and she had just uh, left the company to start her own consulting, and she says, you know, we're, we're going to start doing diversity work. I said, well, the country's always been diverse. What are you talking about? And, of course, when I got my dug into it, I understand. So you really have to be careful. You know, you're, you're right, though. What we used to do back in those days is ask people to come up with a definition to kind of give them a contextual relativism around it. But the way I define it now is kind of multifaceted. You know, in, 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 one, one, one part of the definition talks about establishing quality, productive relationships in the workforce and the community at large. We also need to be defining it as responding positively and creatively to the demographic changes and realities that we reported in Workforce 2000. They've, they've come to fruition. We also need to include a definition understanding and respecting and valuing differences among groups in the context of the business enterprise. And last but not least, we need to talk about creating an environment which ensures full utilization of the skills, abilities, talents, perspectives, and values the workplace uh, of the workplace, creating an environment which works well for everyone, which is a real formidable, challenging task. I got most of you know the mentor that I've I've, I've used, and I, and he's been a godsend to me. The young man by the name of Dr. R. Roosevelt Thomas. He wrote an article in the in the March April 1990 Harvard Harvard Business Review called uh, "From Affirmative Action to Affirming Diversity." There's so much distortion and misconception about diversity as opposed to affirmative action. They're they're, they're 
totally different animals. And then he wrote a very uh, important book, which is kind of like a, a handbook that I, I tell every HR professional and diversity consultant they must become familiar with called Beyond Race and Gender. That's the primer for all the work that we need to start doing now. I plan to hold, I'm working with a couple of state agencies now, and we need to have kind of a summit conference to talk about where we are right now with this work. Roosevelt, uh, he's the, he's the, he's the, he's the uh, chief consultant and president of the American Institute of Managing Diversity down at Morehouse University. I've been down there a few times. Like I said, he's, he's my mentor. And here we are 17 years later. He has a new book out now called The Promise of Diversity. And what he's saying in there is, I don't think we've really done the work in quite the way I envisioned, and we really haven't gotten cultural diversity grounded into the organization, part of the strategic plan, part of the long-term vision, the way we need to. We have much more work to do. Yeah, why is everyone, let me ask you this question, why does everyone become so upset if they ever think you're saying anything that relates to affirmative action? It's a, it's a real distortion. What I do in my uh, classes and my workshops is uh, Roosevelt's given me permission to use a comparative analysis he came up with between uh, affirmative action. There's three, there's three different um, do- domains. There's affirmative action and valuing differences and managing diversity. I think to, re- to answer your question better, it's the way that it was introduced, diversity, cultural diversity, training, and workshops. Number one, it was it's made mandatory. And as an educator, I can assure your audience, you cannot mandate learning. You cannot mandate acceptance to change. It's not going to happen, particularly with adult learners. Number two, there, you know, there's always been a misconception about the intent and purpose of affirmative action. When you read the Civil Rights Act of 1963, the preamble, it says very simply, to eliminate the current effects of past discrimination. And the affirmative action principle says we set goals and timetables. That's been misconstrued as being quotas because that's how it's been been administered. I've, I've, I've had that problem with many clients. When I work for the state of Ohio, as the EEO diversity manager, I noticed just going through the phone book, looking at all the EEO officers that were in the system, about 49 or 50, I was the only officer that had the EEO slash diversity title. That's because an executive order had been passed that said that diversity would be wedded into the affirmative action plan, which causes problems. So it's a real significant, major educational learning piece that we still have much work to do in. I just want to say, and I know this is going to be very controversial what I'm saying, but it's the truth. You know, I heard an author speak many, many years ago at this forum where someone was outraged because they, he, his book was Black Man in Corporate America, and they said, mm. I don't want to hear about affirmative action. And he said, and I'm here to tell you, if there had not been affirmative action, African-Americans would not have been hired. And I'm sorry to say that, you know, he's, he's right. Because that, there is this thing called racism, and guess what? It does exist. And yeah. how I know this is that at Bender Consulting Services, over 45% of our employees are minorities with disabilities. Okay. Okay, now I don't put any special ad out. 
Right. When companies say to me, we're looking for minorities, we just can't find them. I'm saying, well, I'm finding them. Yeah. How do I find them? I'm finding them. Well. So, you know, sometimes we just have to not be in the land of make-believe here and get down to the real-world issues, as I say. But when we come back from break, I'll I'll tell you the other part of the uh, Civil Rights Act that, 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 that needs to be revisited by... Okay, many, let's many, do uh, that. People. Okay. We're going to go to break one minute, and then I'll be back with our great guest, John Matney, talking about civil rights and equality for everyone. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, on voiceamerica.com, where guess what? Disability matters. We'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Garcelle Beauvais-Nylon. When I played a DA on NYPD Blue, I got all the facts before trying a case. Yet many don't know the facts about epilepsy. There are two and a half million Americans with the condition and 1 in 10 Americans will have a seizure in their lifetime. People with epilepsy want to lead normal lives, but too many of us don't know what epilepsy is or what to do if someone has a seizure. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org or call 1-800-332-1000. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. And welcome back to our show with John Matney, who has a new book coming out being released this September, so we'll have to have him back on to talk about that, but he is also a consultant and academic professor. And before we went to break, we were talking about uh, affirmative action and equal opportunity. John, I think you had another comment. You yeah, I wanted to, to add another part to the, to the preamble and, 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 and talk a little bit quickly about how the whole notion of quotas even got into the mindset of, of corporate America and, and, and the community at large. The rest of the preamble said, I, I should have said at the beginning of it, to make a good faith effort to eliminate the current effects of past discrimination. When they did the subcommittee hearings in 1963 to, to actually to turn the act into a law, uh, the, uh, the subcommittee chair uh, was Peter Rodino, and he was um, uh, 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 questioning James Farmer, uh, one of Martin Luther King's right-hand men, about, about, about the legislation. And one of the questions that he asked Mr. Farmer was, he says, well, Mr. Farmer, don't you think that the way that this law, this act, soon-to-be law is written, don't you think that that might create quotas? And the media heard that word, went to their phones, called their newspapers, and started talking about that. And they never, what they missed was Mr. Farmer's response. <laughs> Mr. Farmer's response goes something like this. I'm, I'm not quoting him for, for, for verbatim. He says, 
Mr. Rodino, we're talking about leveling the playing field. We're talking about the fact that we know that there are qualified minorities who have been disenfranchised and marginalized and not been given permission for entry into these jobs. The last thing we want to do is to create a quota system. All we're asking for is equal employment opportunity under the law. Quotas are more damaging to the target group than they are anyone else. Yeah. And, and that never made the media. <laughs> I didn't get to the media, huh? They, they didn't get that part. They didn't hear that part. They didn't want to. Quotas, you know, it was it was sensational. It, it, you know, all the news it fits. I know. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is that, you know, you had situations there where people weren't being hired. They were being disenfranchised, and they still are today. And And that is why... You know, there's a 65% unemployment rate for Americans with significant disabilities. Uh, yes. But for minorities with significant disabilities, it's almost 80%, which I refer to as double jeopardy. It is double jeopardy, but let me, let me go back a step. The quota mentality is still, I think, fairly pervasive. I'll give you a specific example. When I worked for um, the uh, insurance company, very prominent insurance company here in Columbus, one of the major employers, as the assistant personnel manager once again. Once again, my, one of my main responsibilities was to do the affirmative action report, and more importantly was to educate the managers on what the purpose and intent of this report is. Goals and timetables, not, 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 not quotas. We were given the actual statistical data from the government. They, they would give us things like, they'll say, okay, in your general population you have these many qualified minorities in this job category. So we had this much availability. Now, your representation doesn't match the availability. So you need to set a goal that brings you into conformance or compliance with the availability. Representation and availability, in other words, should mirror one another. Set a goal or a timetable. That doesn't mean that you should go out and hire someone who's not qualified. We had one situation where I was asked to interview and talk to a young man whose wife worked for the company. They thought he would be a good fit for an underwriting position. Well, I started out in the, in the insurance industry as an underwriter. So I said, I'll be happy to sit down and talk to him, put him through a behavioral interview, and give you my honest assessment. So I did that with him. Went through the interview process. He had some pretty good uh, qualifications as a customer service person. But I was concerned about decision-making, problem-solving. I was concerned about the technical uh, aspects that he would need to learn in the job as far as the transferability was from his qualifications. So I went to my manager and the hiring manager, and I said, I think we need to not consider him for this position. He's being a lower-level position. I would not recommend it. I said, I know we have a goal and a timetable. I said, but once again, the law says making a good faith effort. If you weren't able to meet that goal because you weren't able to find a, a good pool of candidates from that minority group, you document that, but you also document your efforts. Did you go to job fairs? Did you go across the country? Whatever. I said, it's not a good fit for him. They didn't listen to me. They, they had the quota mentality. They brought him in for an even more stressful interview in their, in their, in their area. After the interview, I went down and, and, and debriefed with him. They said, boy, he was pretty nervous. He was sweating buckets. I said, if he had that kind of a stress with you in an interview, what kind of stress would you expect him to have dealing with agents and customers on the telephone? They said, we, 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 we can work with that, John. We want, to, we, we want to meet the goal. I said, no, you're thinking in a quota mentality. And three months later, 
He didn't even make his probationary period. They brought him down to me. He had to be terminated. Mm-hmm. And once again, that's totally, that get, that's a microcosm of the mindset that we were dealing with in the 1980s and probably still dealing with here in, in 2008. Well, that doesn't work. That's doesn't work why at, at our company, John, our motto is no pity. You know, we don't want pity. We just want a chance to work. Yeah, we don't want pity. We, we want opportunity. That's right. We just want opportunity. That that's is, all we want, an opportunity to demonstrate what we can have Correct. That's well, why, you know, it's not, you know, it's not, it's not a politically correct term for me. It's a morally correct term for me. I'm not disabled. The ADA's definition is kind of clinical. I'm differently abled. I have talents, abilities, and skills that are worthwhile to offer to the larger community. Well, John, you have one uh, issue you're dealing with. Well, you have two, but one of them you mentioned is bipolar disorder. And so you know, many of our listeners throughout the world, are people with bipolar disorder. Okay. For you personally, what was your biggest obstacle dealing with bipolar disorder? The toughest part for me, I made a note about that, one of my toughest parts was the lack of concentration, the disorientation, the total feeling of dis- dysfunctionality. Uh, you know, uh, given the kind of person I have, you know, I mean, I was a very, very high-energy person uh, in the military, always had good leadership positions. I climbed a corporate ladder. I worked there 14 years and had um, seven promotions. And just being, you know, laying in the bed for two or three weeks and not being able to focus in on anything concrete or clear. Of course, my children seeing this, you know, because they really, they really they're 20 years old. I have twins. And they really saw the pervasive effects of this around 11 or 12 years old. And so they had 10 years of a dad that was very active and vibrant. And also, dealing with the uh, antidepressant medications, I, I first started out with lithium, and what we found out that it was really adversely affecting my kidney functions. I've even had to go on dialysis uh, for a little while. So trying to overcome, you know, there, there were times when I didn't even think that I could ever overcome it. You know, I began to feel hopeless, but I had so many close friends that seemed to call my house, and talk to me at some of the most critical times when I was thinking about this ending it all. But just that whole transition, you know, you know, uh, accepting, you know, you, you, you don't accept it. You know, you, you, you try to get to a point where you can pray about it, but, you know, uh, you know, the old, the old, uh, Cherokee saying, you know, woe, woe bless the man who walked but a mile in my shoes. It's like it's almost impossible to get yourself out of that quote unquote funk. Uh, and what would you say helped you the most to get out of it? Well, my faith in God was mm-hmm. was, was 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 the primary one. You know, going to uh, Psalms twenty seven fourteen, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. When I when I was able to do that, it helped me. And then going to my favorite park here in town and doing my journals and, and writing and starting the book, very therapeutic. My family, I think, as best as they could, try to support it, but. Even in their case, you know, um, I have, a, I have, a, I have a, a little colloquialism. People fear what they don't understand. And I think even my family had a hard time understanding how to interact with me. Because, like I said, it was such a drastic shift in behavior. You know, uh, 24, uh, two dozen or so hospitalizations, a dozen suicide attempts. I mean, it's, 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 it's. You know, it's it's almost indescribable. You know, the, uh, that's why, you know, hence the title, Out of the Shadows, Into the Light. 
because you feel like you're in the shadows, you know. And then the other part, you know, to this question about the obstacles, and I need to write more about this in the book. I know I'm going to add more to this. Is I call it the radio syndrome. You know how on a on a radio when you're trying to get a station and you get that distortion and that static. Mm-hmm. That's how I that's how I would feel in some of my worst moments. Is like a radio. You know, the static, 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 and you know, no clarity, no clarity, no clarity, no clarity. I would get up out of the bed and try to you know play some music, which is another one of my real lifelines is music and then I couldn't do that I'd lay in the bed I'd go in the covers you know I'd cry you know I'd go in the bathroom and and, 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 and and go into a deep ball for two or three hours at a time because I couldn't get that static out of my head now how did you educate your family so that they wouldn't just there are families that you know have left yeah. Well, the way I tried, you know, my, my daughter in particular, she's majoring in psychology at the University of Cincinnati. She probably had the most active interest. So I would show her some of my workbooks, and she would come and ask me questions, you know, and talk about it. Uh, my wife, I think, I think she felt she was more self-educated because she's had to endure it. I mean, I became like a third child, you know, over the, you know, between 1985 and 2006. I would say of, of those years. Probably about twelve of those years, I was a third child. You know, I was I was just that dysfunctional in so many ways. And so, you know, I think her feeling was, you know, well, I, I'm living it, I'm enduring it, you know. And I know that she would try to as best she could to explain it to the kids, and and I would try to too, you know, because you know when I cycle up, boy, it's it's real dangerous. You know, I go out and spend money, I chase women, I did some real crazy things. You know, and so when you were in the manic side, oh, the manic side is really, really dangerous for me. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. it's dangerous. I mean, I'll walk four or five miles. You know, uh, uh, just do real crazy things. So uh, I'll, I'll be awake for the, two or three days. Yeah, if you're listening to the show, remember with bipolar disorder, there's the manic side and the depression side, and there's the depressive side. Right. Yeah. And you know, during the, the the manic side, a person can do very unbelievable things. Just incredible things. I mean, that they um, normally would never do. I mean, I, 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 I've been told that I'm a very good writer, and boy, I, I, you know, I have written at least not just a book I'm working on. I've written four position papers. I've done articles. You know, I, you know, it just flows. I may be up for seventy-two, ninety-six hours at a clip. Wow! It's it's just it's just boy. And like I said, I'll go out and, and party and spend a bunch of money that I don't have. You know, it, it's 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 reckless. It's dangerous. Well, the thing now is now you'll be able to help other people. Yeah, um, when um, when Richard Jarrett, who worked for Anthem, who put me in contact with Lynn Kurtz, the uh, talent acquisition um, um, coordinator. He, he he asked me to come to his um, National Association of African American HR Professionals group and do a presentation. He knew I had a pretty diverse background in strategic planning and coaching and mentoring and organizational communications and of course you know workplace diversity. So he asked me. I said, "Well, I'm, I'm going to give you five topics and, and titles, and I, I, I think it was like strategic planning in the 19, you know, strategic planning in the year 2008 for HR, and, and there were four or five more." And, of course, I, I purposely had inserted the joy of being differently able guy. I just finished writing that piece. And I wanted to see what kind of reaction he would get from his constituency. And overwhelmingly, they wanted to hear about 
the joy of being differently able. <laughs> well, let me tell you what. That company is awesome. They are all about hiring people with disabilities. They're incredible. They are. They're incredible. And Lynn Kurtz, Lynn Kurtz is an angel from heaven. She's a godsend. And, and with that, we will be right back with our guest, John Matney. What a great guest he is. Author, professor, consultant. You're listening to Joyce Bender. We are on voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, Hello? and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. I'm Garcelle Beauvais-Nylon. When I played a DA on NYPD Blue, I got all the facts before trying a case. Yet many don't know the facts about epilepsy. There are two and a half million Americans with the condition, and one in ten Americans will have a seizure in their lifetime. People with epilepsy want to lead normal lives, but too many of us don't know what epilepsy is or what to do if someone has a seizure. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org or call 1-800-332-1000. Albert Einstein once said, Nothing happens until something moves. Will your movement towards realizing a dream, making a long-lasting change to your life, or simply putting a daily smile on your face is just a click away. Tune into Maximizing Life with Scott Chesney and free your mind, open your heart, and ignite action in your life. Host and commander in change, empowerment coach, and international speaker, Scott Chesney shares his insights to making the most out of your daily lives. Scott interviews people who are maximizing their lives, the most recognizable transformationalists, and leaders around the world, as well as those hometown heroes that move, touch, and inspire the best in all of us. Stay tuned into Maximizing Life for Scott's one-on-one coaching with callers. Maximizing Life with Scott Chesney broadcasts each Monday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Maximizing Life with Scott Chesney, inspiring you to live life with passion, purpose, and limitless potential. In the great scheme of things, a minute isn't all that much unless you happen to have a stroke. All of a sudden, those minutes count. Minutes that could mean losing your ability to talk, move, or walk. Which is why, if you can get help in time, your stroke can be treated. The warning signs of a stroke include sudden numbness or weakness of the face. If you experience this, call 911 immediately. Visit strokeassociation.org or call 1-888-4-STROKE today. A public service announcement from the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. VoiceAmerica.com If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joy Spender. Well, if you just tuned in, remember, you can go back to voiceamerica.com or to benderconsult.com. Tell all your friends you can still listen to the show because for the past four years now, all the shows have been archived. Since I've been the host of Disability Matters. And if you know someone, a veteran, 
someone with bipolar disorder, someone with post-traumatic stress disorder, you want to tell them about this show, send them back to listen to our guest, John Matney, who has truly just been so delightful to have on the show. And, John, I know there are people listening to the show today who are struggling with acceptance from their friends, their families, because, as you well know, there are friends and family members who do not understand bipolar disorder, who really sort of just think the person's a bad person. You know, how dare you go out and spend all this money, or how dare you go out and, you know, ruin our credit or drink like this or run around, whatever it is. Right. And they cannot understand that it is part of being a bipolar Part of the illness, yeah. yeah. What advice do you have for them? Well, once again, I think it's worth repeating. You know, I just kind of thought about this when I put together the joy of being differently able. People truly do fear what they don't understand. One piece of advice I'd, I'd give: I uh, I went through an uh, I went through an agency called uh, COVA here in town, which stands for the Center of Vocational Alternatives, and their mission is to help people with physical and mental disabilities gain the skills they need and confidence to go back into the workforce. I went through the six-week first part of the program, and then they mentioned one day that they needed their, their HR volunteer was going to be leaving the agency, and they needed someone to help do the resumes and the cover letters and the mock interviews. So I, I volunteered to do that. I've been doing that now for about two years. And one of the real key issues that comes up in presentations that I do is this whole idea of to tell or not to tell. How much should you disclose about your disability? And what I what I told them, uh, and the joy, not just them. When we, when we, when we do, uh, we, we we do what we call a rehabilitation readiness debrief. We, we're getting ready to send them out into the work world with their nice suits and their resumes and their interviewing training. And I told them that I masked mine for many years. I remember when I applied at the state agency that I worked at for two years. The question on the application was, "Do you currently have a disability that would prevent you from?" effectively performing your job duties? Well, that was a real fine-line question. I took the higher road and said no. The first year that I worked there was great. They even told me that I raised the bar. Then the second year, I started having some personal problems, marital problems, and my performance started declining, got depressed. Long story short, I was on medical leave for eight months. And when I came back to work, the chief of the HR of the age of my boss said, my boss's boss said, if you had just told us and been more, you know, uh, forthcoming, you know, we've got the employee assistance program. We could have worked something out, John. You know, you gave us a real fine year, and then all of a sudden you had these problems. And if you had just been more honest about it on the on the on the application, well, as an HR professional, I should have known better. Lessons learned. So when I when I talk about, you know, to those fellow travelers on the journey is I said, keep these tips in mind. First of all, be prepared to explain your gaps in employment when you go into the uh, interview or the, the, the job opportunity. Briefly mention your disability if you are quite certain it may impact job performance or require some kind of reasonable accommodation. Studies show that companies spend no more than $500 to maybe 1000 on reasonable accommodation. It's very, very minimal. Consult with your attending physician or therapist and ask them to discuss your current condition with the employer or put in writing your readiness to return. This is a critical step, again, to thine own self be true. 
obtain references, letters from counselors, teachers, supervisors, friends, and colleagues who are familiar with your work ethic and your commitment to wellness. Now, when I share these things at the agency, some of the administrators become a little uncomfortable. There's no question that this is somewhat unconventional, maybe even unwise steps for some people to take. But once again, I'm reflecting on my own experiences. Two well, you know what? You know how I would explain that? I, When I speak to people with epilepsy, they ask me, should I disclose I have a disability on the interview? And my answer is always absolutely not, only because under the Americans with Disabilities Act, you're supposed to be hired for your ability. That's it's true. not that you're being hired because of your disability. However, after you have the job offer or you're working at the company, if you feel, if you believe that I am in jeopardy, you know, having a seizure, um, where they would have to know what to do, then, you know, that's your right to go ahead and tell them. Yeah. But remember, as John said, how he explained that, not on the job interview. No. But like, if he would have had that job, for example, he's talking about the situation he had there, he could have gone to his boss now that he's already employed and said, I must speak to you. This is my situation. Fresh what accommodation can you provide? Fresh and, 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 because That's he's right. Brand. The average cost of an accommodation is only 500 to to $1,000 in the United States today. Yeah. And it's so funny you would talk about that because I just read a story about uh, Heather Witherspoon where she so much wanted to win this pageant and she lost. And she told her mother and dad, she said, I lost because they discriminated against me because I was deaf. They said, no, you lost because you didn't let them know you were deaf so you, so you couldn't read their lips. Of course, exactly. she went on to be Miss America. But remember, pre-offer, you are not required to tell what your disability is. After you get the job, then up to you what you want to do. That's you know, yeah. your choice. Weigh it out once again. Um, understand your capabilities. Be realistic about your limitations. And, you know, make your best decision. Like I said, when I look back on it, those two dozen hospitalizations, those suicide attempts, lost wages, I would approximately say between $1 and $1.5 million, extended medical leave, undue hardship on my family. I stand on, uh, on, 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 being, on being honest. Well, John, what would you say is your greatest accomplishment? I think my greatest accomplishment, um, my greatest accomplishment, I would say, aside from being a survivor who's, you know, been saved through, through God's, God's will, I would have to say having the privilege of raising a daughter and a son who have turned out to be two really neat people. We That's wonderful. Children. That is wonderful. Yeah. And, and, John, what message would you like to leave with our listeners today? Well, I'd like to leave with, I, I do an outline uh, for my uh for my uh, for my uh, my clients, and it goes like this: failure is never final. Education is essential. Create a lifetime plan. Remember the three T's: give ten percent of your time, talents, and treasures to others early and often, and commit the uh, serenity prayer to memory. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, that is good, and thank you so much, John, and my message to all of you listening today, lead on, lead on, says Justin Dart, Jr., lead on and don't stop. You've been listening to Joyce Bender.
America's Voice on voiceamerica.com. John, thank you so much. We My wish pleasure. you only the best. Thank you. All right, everyone. See you next week. Remember, care, lead on no matter what. Bye-bye. All right. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.